really, really great privilege to be be the second speaker. Although it's really quite informal, the remarks that I want to introduce, principally to stimulate a discussion, and I think that knowing you, there won't really be anyone here that uh, really dissents or, or kind of maybe thinks in a, in a sort of liberal fashion about the uh, the matter of the temporal order and the spiritual order. So, so it won't be a very confrontational debate, but nevertheless we can, I think, tease out this doctrine and, and sort of unfold it a bit more and then consider the implications for our own lives, because that's really what I want to focus in on today and I think it follows on very nicely from Dave's excellent uh, first talk for Farris on with the with the ballad of the white horse because what we what we heard there with the story of King Alfred the Great invoking our lady to win the battle of Efton Ethelden against the Danes is the beginning of Christendom and my talk is is titled Christendom and the lay apostolate. So it's very, it's very kind of natural sequence to to follow on from that. Uh, so I, I think just to introduce my remarks, I'll say that today we hear a lot about identity crises, crises plural. We hear that there's a, an identity identity crisis about what does it mean to be English, what does it mean to be um, a, a man. Yeah. What, what does it mean uh, to live where I live in my local region? We're, we're all sort of deracinated by this uh, this churn, this liquefaction of modernity. And I would say that there, this identity crisis is unfortunately infected the church as well, in that we have a crisis, uh, an identity crisis about understanding our vocation as the laity or, or our mission as the laity and you can see this in all sorts of ways you can see it in the confusion that abounds between clergy and laity and the blurring of that so you'll, you'll see it in in a lot of novus ordo parishes is that when someone becomes very serious about their faith the, the priest might say to them okay you can now carry the cruets up you can now uh, you know, uh, do catechesis, which really is his role. Mm. He's delegating to them. Okay, maybe it's necessary in an emergency situation where the, the priest is very time pressured. But I think it bespeaks this blurring of the of the roles of the clergy and the laity, whereby the laity are, if they are fervent about their faith, tasked with becoming mini priests almost. And then on the other hand, you have priests in the pulpit preaching about, you know, the environment and about economic justice um, and, and about uh, Trump's immigration policy and all these matters of politics, which really have nothing to do with the clergy. That's the role of the laity. They're, what they should be preaching about, as we know, is you know, the nature of the Blessed Trinity, redemptive suffering, the virtues, our, our Lord's atonement matters of faith and morals essentially and the principles which inform the action of the laity in the temporal sphere so we have this confusion with these parishes if effectively de facto are run by lay women 
So these pr the priest, the parish priest, who's meant to be in his office, are both uh, priest, prophet, and king, to rule, to sanctify, to govern, has lost that office of government in a sense, and is this kind of emasculated vessel whereby the parish secretary and the you know the cabal of these women actually dictate catechesis, the liturgy, etc., etc., which is their laity. So this is the kind of confusion you have. Why is there that confusion? Well, if you look at what is the lay apostolate, the lay apostolate cannot be understood without understanding a single word, which is Christendom. What is Christendom? I've come up with a few definitions here, but it is the society of the baptised. It is the subjection of the temporal order to Christ. And it was perhaps most clearly realised in what we call the Middle Ages. And um, an eminent historian described the Middle Ages as the, the period in time when the church was identified with the whole of organised society, mm. at least in Europe. And, and it is important we understand it, that because the, the apostolate of the laity is to realise Christendom. So it's been done before. It is to conform society to Christ. And I, I could go and make this talk a lot longer and talk about how that's actually evinced in, in Scripture. But just to mention, there's a beautiful passage in the Gospel of Mark. It's the, it's the Gadarene demoniac, I think. Mm. The one that our Lord... Uh, exorcises the demons who then go into the pigs who then then he, the the preachers in that area I can't remember the name of that area is it Decapolis or somewhere like that then he comes back and the the, the, the man who was uh, who'd, who'd been exorcised comes back and he says can I join you and our Lord says no he says go and publish the good news in the, in the Dewey Reams version go and publish the good news so what happened there the demoniac asked him can i become a priest can i join the apostles and he said no go and publish the good news of your of of how god's love has transformed your life so he so that he is the uh, he, that he is the the vocation of the layman because he asked to be a clergy he doesn't have the the right the right uh, the special vocation the special grace for that but your role is to go and publish the good news of christ's uh, saving grace mm -hmm. And then when our Lord comes back there, there are crowds that flock to his teaching. So clearly he fulfilled his, uh, his mission that our Lord had given him. So what does this mean? Well, we have the doctrine that the church teaches about how the, the church is to the state as the soul is to the body. And, and this is actually a constant. So every society, this is the great lie of liberalism. That, that you can have a, a, a religious kind of neutrality or no, no uh, animating principle to a society. Officially atheist countries, such as the communist states, um, professed no religion. Of course, Christianity was completely uh, persecuted and suppressed. It was often said, there is no God, but Lenin is his prophet. In other words, they were totally religious societies. It's just the false religion of communism. You had the cult of personality. Man is a religious animal. So if you do not uh, recognise the true religion on a public level, 
then you will recognise a false religion. Okay, so uh, I don't really have time to to expand the the fullness of the the church's teaching, but I'll look, uh, St Paul talks about at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, and you have with the Great Commission all power on heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go forth and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost. He doesn't say go forth and baptize all people, baptize all nations. Our Lord wants Catholic nations. And, and that's what then happens over the centuries of the, the so-called so Dark Ages, the late antiquity and then the Dark Ages, is the, uh, the conversion of whole peoples as nations to Christ and the establishment of divine revelation as the principle and source of public policy and public law. This was always the church's teaching, as with so much the church's teaching, it was uh, articulated, it was unfolded, it was um, expressed in a, more, in a fuller way, but never changed in, in essence over the centuries. A very important moment was what, what's known as the Gelasian diarchy. That, really, that refers to Pope Gelasius, who was in the 5th century, writing to the uh, Eastern Roman Emperor about the relationship between the church and the state. It's called Diarchy Two Arc or Orders, Two Orders. The order of the, the temporal order and the spiritual order. And this letter is very interesting. It's called uh, Duo Sint. I think there are two. It refers to the passage in Luke where our Lord, there's a very kind of mysterious moment where he says to the disciples, Do you have the sword? Or something like, Do you have the swords? They say, Yes. And they reply, Yes, we have two. He goes, That is enough. Okay. And then later in the Garden of Gethsemane where the, the gang come to arrest our Lord. St. Peter draws a sword and strikes Malchus, the, the high priest's servant's ear off. Mm. And then our Lord says, put your sword back in its scabbard. So, you know, the fathers of the church obviously thought about this. And, 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 and uh, Pope Gelasius writes to the, the emperor that this refers to the temporal and spiritual order of the two swords. Both belong to the clergy. Okay, so the church is above the state because it's concerned with eternal life. And even priests will have to answer before God at Judgment Day as to the, the, the souls of kings. Mm. Right? They will, so, so that's why the, the king defers to the priest. Now, it's not in the priest's competence necessarily to to decide the rate of income tax, where roads should be built, the country's policy of war and so on. No, because that's outside their competency. Our Lord gave two swords and told Peter to put back his sword. So the spiritual power's sword is the, the coercive power the church has over the baptised, which is the power of interdict, the power of excommunication, the power of censure. All these elements of, of coercion that the churches has, which are completely misunderstood, by the way. Obviously, the world says, ah, oh, that's the church being completely tyrannical and suppressing. The excommunication censure, they're medicinal. Mm. They are to make clear to the heretic, to the dissenter, mm. that their public promulgation and so on is uh, endangering their soul and the souls of others. And to, to express to them the gravity of their error. 
so that they return to the fault. So, so all of this is to say that you, you reached, uh, with the breakdown of civilization uh, after the fall of the Roman Empire, the church were, picked up the pieces and rebuilt civilization over many centuries. The monasteries were absolutely crucial uh, for preserving reading and writing, for preserving sacred scripture, um, but also for preserving farming techniques and, and, and actual uh, you know, methods of, of having a, of a productive society. And you have this flowering uh, in the Middle Ages. But what's interesting is you go back to the primary sources and look at somewhere like King St. Louis, France in the 13th century, or King uh, Ed, St. Edward the Confessor, the only, well, what, the only sainted king of England, is that people didn't talk so much about church and state. They talked about clergy and laity, but they were all baptised. The church was identified with the whole of civilized society. This idea that just the clergy, the church, is clericalism. That's clericalism. The identification of church with the clergy. So you you know sometimes you see this all the time nowadays. And three events led to this establishment of the the church and in Christendom. Uh, very briefly, they they were when Constantine converted three twelve which is when the church was no longer persecuted. 380, when the Emperor Theodosius made the Catholic religion the public religion of the Roman Empire. And then in the year 800, where Charlemagne was crowned emperor and declared the supremacy of the spiritual power over the temporal power. Why is that? Because he got to become emperor because the Pope crowned him. That was an expression of the supremacy of the church over the Holy Roman Empire. And unfortunately, in this sort of diabolical process of revolution, the dissolution of Christendom has happened in three stages as well. Where the church's modernity, you could say, is when the church ceases to be, to be identified with uh, organised society. And there, there are three events there. So you have perhaps first in 1555 with the Protestant Revolution, you have the Treaty of Augsburg, Basically, the church tries to, the Catholic powers try to, uh, to crush the Protestants, and it fails. Uh, so you have a treaty where they agree that whichever, it's called quius regio eus religio, whoever lives under a certain prince has to follow the prince's confession. This way you have the confessional state, which in a sense is absurd when you think about it, because you're saying that on one side of the Rhine, a Catholic needs sola fide to be saved. But on the other side, it's faith in good works. There, it's like one is true or, one, or the other isn't true, or they're both wrong. They can't both be true. So this basically undoes the principle, the first principle, sorry, the principle of Charlemagne, the supremacy of the church over the state, because the church basically acknowledges the existence of Protestant powers. The second stage of reversal is actually in 1801 with the Concordat, Napoleon signs with the Vatican which basically acknowledges that the majority of the people in France are Catholic, but France is not a Catholic country. So that undoes what Theodosius established, that um, Catholicism is the public religion of the Roman Empire. That's reversed. And then finally, the third stage, which we're living in now, just beginning, is when the church is the, the beginning of outright persecution. Uh, something, something to dwell on. 
Uh, okay, so there's so much could be said here. It's a very, very deep and wide subject. But why is it important to get this doctrine right? Because it has got been gotten so wrong in the last 50 years. I, I remember someone describing it as if you do not... If you do not present to someone a vision of what their entire society would look like if it was if it was evangelized, then you're not really you can't really evangelize them. So if I, I if I say to you, I'm going to preach to you the, the gospel, but it's not necessarily for your society to acknowledge that truth, then that undermines the truth of the gospel itself, because it's it's either the case that the true religion is worth knowing as a person or is worth knowing by everyone but to implicitly not preach a public faith is to say that the faith is some kind of personal hobby rather than a vision for the transformation of the whole society which we know it to be but similarly another analogy if, if you were to say I, I have a, co a cousin who kicks his football around the house a lot and it can break things and, and cause chaos if you have a rule saying if you don't have a rule about kicking football in the house, he's going to kick football in the house. Because what you're saying to him is it's, it's not important enough about you kicking football in the house and risking breaking things for me to have a rule. It's illicit for you to do so. It needs to be, it, the law is educative. So there needs to be a rule there in, explicitly in place. Otherwise it says that it's not important enough to, for there to be a rule about it. So by not acknowledging a religion, Liberalism has this lie, remember, where it says there isn't a true religion. The state sends out the message that the truth about religion cannot be known. Okay, there are objections to the church actually pronouncing this teaching to the world today because of the confusion following Vatican II. One that you get quite a lot from, I think people, a lot of people who are, who are orthodox, but they... They're, they're often sort of affected by American sensibilities. Is this idea, well, it's not practical. Why would you, why would you, you know, there's no chance that, the, that America is going to become a Catholic state. Like it's just, people, if you start talking about that, people just think you're just completely balmy. But getting the principles right now will inform our actions that we take now. Aristotle said, what is first in intention is last in execution. You cannot do what you need to do now without getting the principles right. So if we get the principle right about church and state, about the need for, for them to be joined, then we will not do and, and will do certain things now. So we will not participate in certain events with the church, with the state, sorry, that send out the message that, that liberalism is okay. And that's the art. That's why the church, the hierarchical church, the institutional church, will not acknowledge its teaching because the church does not want to confront liberalism. So, what do we have to do in our own lives as as laymen? I think the answer to that it's a it's a it's a long historical discussion, but the answer to that is is the kind of embodied in the term counter revolution. So, if revolution is the the process whereby Christendom was dissolved. Um, what we seek to do with counter-revolution is to restore the order of Christendom. And uh, Pius X wrote to French Catholics in Nostra Charge Apostolique, 
that we must repeat, quote, we must repeat with the utmost energy in these times of social and intellectual anarchy, when everyone takes it upon himself to teach as a teacher and lawmaker. The city cannot be built otherwise than as God has built it. Society cannot be set up unless the church lays the foundations and supervises the work. No civilization is not something yet to be found, nor is the new city to be built on hazy notions. It has been in existence and still is. It is Christian civilization. It is the Catholic city. It has only to be set up and restored continually against the unremitting attacks of insane dreamers, rebels and miscreants. Omnia instaure in Christu, which is, was his papal motto, to restore everything in Christ. So, counter-revolution is about restoring the just order of Christendom against the disorder of the revolution, which is continually disordered. Liberalism can't even live by its own guarantees. Uh, to use an example today, it professes a, a certain kind of liberation for women, but then imports millions of Mohammedans who undermine that ideology of women's liberation. Um, it doesn't even, it's not generative, it doesn't, you know, within a few generations the population radically shrinks because its own value system is hedonistic and is about personal autonomy which is basically subjection to the passions, enslavement to sin, and uh, therefore you would not carry out the sacrifice a parent needs to raise offspring. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't even it, it doesn't even survive as as an ideology, but it's it's parasitic because it, it basically lives on what's left of Christendom and constantly erodes that. And so there was quite a, a good quote here. Oh yeah, so if the revolution is disorder, the counter-revolution is the restoration of order. And by order, we mean the peace of Christ in the reign of Christ. That is, Christian civilization, austere and hierarchical, fundamentally sacral, anti-egalitarian and anti-liberal. So that's, that's quite, a, quite a good summary. And then I, I really liked this story of what Father Reginald Garrigou Lagrange said who I'm sure you've heard of, famous Thomist from the last century, who basically synthesised the thought of St Thomas with the thought of uh, St John of the Cross, mm. which is quite an achievement. And he was visiting Brazil in the 1930s. Uh, a photograph shows Plinio Croix de Oliveira next to the French Dominican. The latter, uh, Father Garrigou Lagrange, replied as follows to a request from the Legionario, that was a newspaper, so someone wrote into the newspaper, and he said, can you comment on the phrase, the church is neither left, neither on the left nor on the right, politically? And this is what Father Garrigou Lagrange said. He said, I am a man of the right, and I do not see why I should hide the fact. I believe that many of those who use the phrase, quoted, use it for abandoning the right and then sliding towards the left. While trying to avoid an excess, they fall into the opposite, as happened in France in recent years. I also believe that we should not confuse the true rights with the false rights, which defend a false order, not the true one. But the true right that defends order founded on justice seems to be a reflection of what the scriptures call the right hand of God, when they proclaim that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and the elect will be at the right hand of the Most High. 
So that, I think that's interesting, but one, one, has to, one has to be careful because what we're presented as right wing is, is in fact not. We're not looking to defend rapacious capitalism. You know, we do the, the rapacious capitalism is actually left wing because it has destroyed the just order of cha economic charity and justice that was in Christendom, right? And socialists are reacting against in the wrong way, but there, there was a mistake there. So we have the true right as opposed to the false right. Um, a few other, few, few other closing remarks. I think I've gone on a little bit. Just to think about implications here, there was a, a chancellor of Austria in the 1930s uh, called Dolphus, who was a very devout man and wanted to restore the Habsburg monarchy and ended up being assassinated by the Nazis um, when they were looking to basically swallow Austria up. And he had frequent communication with Pius XI and was looking to um, really make turn Austria into a, a model Christian state, a republic, unfortunately, but just as much as he could. And um, when we talk about establishing the church as the public religion, there are implications of that which are uncomfortable for modern liberals, for, for us to think about. Uh, an example would have been in Dolphus's Austria, where in universities, non-Catholic professors were paid 75% of what Catholic professors were paid. Okay, why is that? Because the church teaches that the, the full a full education is a Catholic education. So a non-Catholic cannot give a full education to, to these students. So therefore, they're not paid as much, right? So the, these are the sort of some of the, the realities of integralism that we do have to think about because this is what our critics come back at us with. And we have to say, well, actually, this is, this is the circumstances, this is what's happening here. Father Thomas Crean, who I mentioned earlier, said that when there are sufficient numbers of Catholics, so when the state becomes majority Catholic and the state is baptized, non-Catholics, this is what the, his critics said, he said, but the Father Crean was saying they, the non-Catholics would be deprived of basic liberties, such as the right to hold office. Well, in, in a sense, that's true. In Christendom, you would not have Jewish mayors of, of cities, for example. You know, they would not have authority over the baptized. There was toleration. That's something different. So what should we do? I think we should learn history. I know Vic is enjoying the programme Civilization with Kenneth Clark, which is which is a great kind of survey of material culture of Christendom. Christendom was a liturgical polity, and that, that could be a whole talk itself, but basically everything flows from Calvary. Where we have cities today are where the churches were built, yeah. and the roads are so that people can get to the Holy Mass, and the art that adorned it was for the Holy Mass. The music was for the Holy Mass. Everything is about the Holy Sacrifice. So that, that's really worth studying more. And I guess two final points uh, before, before we discuss it together is that one kind of summation that I came up with is that in secular societies, souls are caught with lines and fish hooks, but in Christendom, souls are caught with nets. That's ultimately all it's about. It's about the highest law is the salvation of souls. And it's about how do we get as many people to heaven as possible. 
And the second one is that full adherence to what you what's called integralism, this uh, basically adherence to the church's traditional teaching, sets up a dramatic confrontation with liberalism, leaving no space in a sense for compromise. This is the one thing Freemasons will not compromise on, is the social reign of Christ the King. And in that, we, we get to a situation where a, a modus vivendi may not be able to be reached, but we know if we announce this doctrine, if we announce the doctrine of our Lord, then the world will want to kill us. Christ told us the world will hate us and sent the apostles out to be his witnesses. Why do cardinals get to wear red? You know, what is, what is, witness, what is witness in Greek? It's martyrs to the ends of the earth and every single one of them except for St. John was martyred and he was boiled in oil and it was only because he hadn't because he'd been willing to um, to die with our Lord on Calvary I guess that he was he didn't suffer so we know as Christians suffering is redemptive that that is how God draws us into his love so the question we know what we've got to do are we willing to do it